I feel like the last sort of seven years have been trying to like undo all of my like teenage years of just being so desperate to conform and to be like everyone else and to be normal and to like you know just be bang in the middle of the status quo and actually feeling more and more able to see myself as separate from that and almost like relish in that attitudes are beginning to change a stigma surrounding dyslexia muddled messages were received the by the brain dyslexia will not hold you back dyslexic it's kind of your super anything is dyslexia dyslexia Hello, we are Move Beyond Words and welcome to the last episode of Series 2. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review. We're told that this really helps with reaching the people who need this podcast most. I'm Elizabeth Arifian. And I'm Charlotte Edmonds. In this episode, we talk with sexual health communicator, author and specialist Ruby Stevenson, aka Ruby Rare host of the In Touch podcast, author of Sex Ed, A Guide for Adults, and a former ambassador for Brooke, the UK's leading sexual health and well-being charity for young people. Ruby is devoted to destigmatizing sexual knowledge and promoting body positivity. In this conversation, we explore body acceptance, how to openly communicate about the importance of sex education for people of all ages, and what Ruby's recent dyslexia diagnosis means to her. Welcome Ruby Stevenson to the Move Beyond Words podcast. Hi Ruby, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Uh, we we didn't meet at choir, but we're both in the same choir. But we're in different parts. We are. So I don't. So I like see you from afar, but we don't chat. We, <laughs> there's like a tribe mentality to this choir. <laughs> there really is. We have a soprano group called Go High or Go Home. <laughs> and it's like the subculture of of um, the quiet. I shouldn't wow. be sharing that, should I? All right, I'm going to have to get on a WhatsApp group with, for the melodies. <laughs> who is who? Are you an alto? No, I'm a melody because I like just singing the tune. Ah, uh, soprano. And I want to no? sing the most amount. No. Oh, right. God, my terminology is all over the place. You're soprano, Liz. I'm like, really? I actually have quite a low singing voice, but I quite like, I I, I'm really enjoying just like not having to learn difficult harmonies and just like singing all the song. That there's there's a joy to that. So I feel like I really messed up <laughs> because the sopranos always get like the <laughs> like the quite challenging harmony, and I kind of just joined it for the fun. <laughs> but now I have to go home and actually You're practice. Like musically challenged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that's what I was avoiding. Uh, you were clever. You were wise. <laughs> but it's a fun space. Although I said I shared something um, like a clip of us doing that like warm up um, the like dynamics exercise on my Instagram the other day and. Someone messaged me being like, with all due respect, this is giving me like major culty midsummer vibes. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> and I really loved it because all of us were like very Margate, very like brightly colourful like, in terms of the way we're dressing, all like singing this like weird ethereal tune. And I kind of like stepping back, I was like, oh yeah, there is a like joyful cultiness to this choir, isn't there? It is beautiful though. It's probably been like the best space to meet new people having just moved to Margate. Everyone's just so lovely and like open and friendly and like, yeah, it's a, it's a really beautiful space. And Huey, who's the um, choir conductor, is dyslexic. And no way. Yeah. And that Aww. for me, like when I found that out, it made that space even more accepted because I knew that, you know, sometimes I might mess up, but actually like it's okay because he is as well. Yeah. And like he just owns it and like, you know, no one would ever know. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't know that he's dyslexic unless it's pointed out to you. 
And it's that whole thing of doing something for the sake of it being fun mm. and feeling connected. Because I feel like for so long, I really love singing and I love doing lots of other like creative things, but I have stopped myself from doing them from, for ages and still do in lots of different areas because there's that pressure that like, it's only worth my while if I'm being good at it or if like mm. someone else validates me doing that. So like just being in a room and singing and like it doesn't matter if you're kind of out of tune or you mess up a bit as long as you're like smiling and having a nice time. Yeah. That has felt really important. And I definitely do that with like the life drawing that I co-run. A lot of that is the emphasis on like just making art for art's sake and like playing rather than having a masterpiece and someone like you know like giving you a gold star or a pat on the back it like it, it, yeah it's just like governed my life for a really long time obviously I feel like after lockdown everyone took the time to invest in hobbies and retune with just giving themselves space to just be and play and create and now actually as creatives bringing that into our world is so important we were talking to Lou Williams and she was saying that she probably spends two days a month, you know, like actually being creative. So I love hearing about choir and uh, and the and the kind of enlightenment that it brings. And it also brought us together, yeah. as well as um, as well as meeting on the Margate Film Night. Well, that's where we actually met. Yeah, probably. Is, I forget what it was called. Was it Fem Festival? And it was part yeah. of um, Power of Women Festival, which was an insanely empowering festival down in Margate. Yeah, so so we kind of got introduced to one another there and I feel like you've opened this whole world of newness. Is that a word? I don't know, <laughs> but I like it. Newness. Um, and I would love for you to just share a little bit about what you do. And yeah, it's quite a heavy question that, isn't it? It's also really nice. <laughs> that's so that's such a lovely thing to hear. And I don't know. I'm still not very good at like taking uh, like letting those kinds of comments like really percolate because that's obviously like the nicest thing that someone can say. But yeah, I can do a little ramble of like the kind of stuff I, I do. So for the last like seven years or so, I've been working in sexual health and then kind of sex positivity, queer celebration and empowerment and body positivity and celebration they're kind of the main things that I do and I started working for a sexual health charity called Brooke which is like an amazing charity I spent five years there I started as um, a young person's volunteer and when I began I was terrified of public speaking like would go bright red and shake if I had to speak in a meeting of five people like really 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 struggled with it and I had enjoyed doing kind of creative stuff and performance stuff as a kid in school. And I think it, I just became like way too self-conscious and that kind of died in me a little bit. And it was through working at Brooke and going into schools and facilitating relationship and sex education. It was kind of like a baptism by fire. I often think of it as like a com uh, like a comedian doing the circuit of just doing like gig after gig and bombing <laughs> and then doing amazing sometimes that was me just going into like every school in London being like hey we're going to talk about consent for an hour and I'm just going to have to do this so I learned really fast and over five years I gained like so much knowledge and so much self-confidence and kind of really fell in love with the way that I communicate as well and like realized that I love doing that and started like running projects and kind of over at the end of that five-year period was like running quite a big 
national project within Brooke, which was all about period equity and also talking about sex and running workshops for adults outside of Brooke and realizing that like adults have just as many questions about sex and relationships and bodies that young people do. And, you know, the questions might change and evolve over time, depending on our context. But actually, we're all asking like pretty similar questions throughout our lives. So when I I became self-employed two years ago, and now I primarily work with adults, it's still like a bit of a mix, but I am just like a really curious, nosy person. And I want to talk about a lot of the things that we feel quite nervous to talk about and we're culturally, I think we're a lot more curious about sex and relationships than we've ever been, but there's still so many hangups. And I think so many of us, myself included, are still like worrying if we're doing it right. And they're like, yeah, there's, I just, I don't think I can ever get bored with this topic. So I talk about it in lots of different ways. Some of that's online and me like prancing around in my pants and trying to be silly and fun when I'm talking about all this stuff. And I also do like audio stuff. I made a podcast uh, last year and wrote a book and and you know and then I'm starting to do live events again because that was my like favorite thing I just like being in a room and chatting with people yeah I guess also all of those things really relate to me as a kind of like queer non-monogamous person and other aspects of my identity have like really fed into all of that but just a little nosy curious (laughs) silly person basically We were just saying, well, Liz messaged me being like, oh my gosh, Ruby's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we did a, yeah, pretty pretty much marathon uh, spin. It's just so engaging. And like you said, like you're communicating with so many different people, but adults especially as well. And, you know, as an adult, I'm learning learning so much as everything is evolving. And and you said, you know, are we doing it right with quotations? And I think that right is always being malleable and moving and um it's something that obviously we wanted to also bring to this space and learn about neurodiversity and how that's also ever evolving and when we met you um in margate uh, we had just screened unbox which is our film um about dyslexia and you were like i'm just Thank you. I, I deliberately mentioned that so that <laughs> you could give us a couple of minutes. I'm joking, I'm joking. But uh, you said, I have just been diagnosed with dyslexia. And th- isn't it a wonderful moment to finish the podcast um, with someone like yourself who has just been diagnosed and all the other wonderful work that you do? Why it's so lovely that we're ending the podcast with yourself, who more than likely will have a lot of questions about yeah. dyslexia. And I mm-hmm. don't want you to be shy in holding them back because I think. We started this podcast because we didn't understand what dyslexia was. It was a label that we were given when we were kids and no one actually really explained what it was Mm -hmm. and what the scientific background to it was. Um, It was just a label that most people associated people with being lazy or slow or probably not amounting to much in their lives. And that is a heavy burden to carry. So for us, we were like, okay, well, we've got this far in life mm-hmm. and we're in an industry that is being, is creative because that's where we've been shifted to go. But there's such a lack of support for freelancers and for people who, you know, are neurodivergent in the workplace anyway. Like there's, so ending the podcast feels like a, we were talking before about we're like an onion, you know, you start peeling back the layers and there's more and more and more. So it'll be really interesting to hear, you know, from yourself who hasn't necessarily 
been in this world, what dyslexia is like from your perspective. Yeah, totally. I mean, it feels, all of this feels really vulnerable in like my field of work. I'm used to being like having vulnerability, but I'm not really used to being like the vulnerable person who like doesn't understand parts about their identity because I, it is my job to do a lot of that work and Mm. and to know quite a lot. So it's been really interesting. I was diagnosed like just over a month ago, I guess. Wow. And, and like, you know, I'm 28 and I had never had an inkling that I was dyslexic before in my life and actually was doing the reason why I was diagnosed was because I realized at the end of last year that I was, re- I was kind of like finally honest with myself that I was really struggling with being self-employed and it had been almost two years. I like, I left my job and became a freelancer in like March 2020, which not the best timing. <laughs> really <laughs> so it, so like, not only was it like embarking on being self-employed, but also doing that like in an extra isolated environment. And I'd been kind of hanging on up until like just at the end of last year and then was just like, oh, I'm not doing this well. Like I actually need to admit that this isn't working for me. And I'm, I tend to be quite self-reliant and it takes me a little while professionally to ask people for help because I am just like, it's easier if I can do it all. Like I've got like big sister energy in me. I'm just like, yep, I will just do it. It's fine, whatever. And actually that doesn't work. It doesn't serve anyone. And it certainly doesn't make me feel like happy or on top of things. I started working with a career psychologist who is like, you know, psychological, like legit, (laughs) like a psychologist, a psychologist (laughs) and like trained and stuff. We were doing all of these different things, which was really interesting. And she was the one who, in the way that we were working, was like, are you up for doing a dyslexia test? I just feel like there's probably some neurodivergence there with the way that your brain works. And it might be useful to see if there's a, if like there is a diagnosis, like there might not be, we'll just have a, we'll just have a look. And I was really expecting her to be like, no, cool, we've ruled that out. It's just something like, it's just who you are or whatever. And we did all these tests and we were like in person. And at the end of it, she was looking down for like less than 30 seconds and was like, yep, yeah, you're dyslexic. You are dyslexic. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a weird thing to be like, oh, wow, I've never, I kind of feel like I'm picking up a lot of the pieces right now and going back and reflecting on my childhood and a lot of the things that I still carry lots of shame around and I've had to like manage and work really hard to not be obvious my whole life. And knowing that like in part dyslexia was there the whole time and like a factor in all of them is quite an emotional thing. Mm -hmm. I've definitely, I think it's, I really compare it to coming out as queer and going back, like my sibling and I have had amazing conversations and even now we'll like text each other weird memories from our childhood being like lol neither of us realized that we were queer what the fuck (laughs) so it's almost going back and being like oh yeah of course all the signs were there it just really took me a while to see that part of my identity because the world around me wasn't designed to see and celebrate it and so in the same way like I, I feel a little bit cheated and I feel a bit of loss that I I see from like both of your experiences it's hard to have that label for so much of your life and almost be like brandished with that but I'm feeling a bit of a loss of like not having had that. Like I got no support at school and I'm like, oh God, what would I, you know, what I'm doing all the what ifs of if I'd had support, if I'd had some awareness of what this was. 
It's a, it's a weird one right now. I kind of, I feel a bit like lost at sea with this part of my identity. And it's been amazing talking to friends about it and just realizing like how many of my mates are dyslexic and neurodivergent. And it's this whole like conversation that's just blossoming around me. But you've caught me right at the beginning of it, which is quite weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, kudos yes. for coming and sharing you know, you're in a safe space. It is a really vulnerable thing to be going through and to be sharing with an audience. But it will support so many other adults who are also just realising that they're neurodivergent and like don't know what to do with it. Have you found any resources or anything that has helped you with understanding it other than friends? Not really. I mean, I've listened to like a fair bit of this podcast, which has been amazing because just hearing other people talking has been really Mm. great because I think that's the nicest place to start to just hear other people's experiences and like see the bits that relate to me. Like, I don't know which one of you like has the orange glasses. My favourite sunglasses that I've been wearing for like years and it was you know I'm like I don't know but it was literally like a couple of days ago when I listened to that episode I was like what is that a dyslexia thing so I think this podcast has genuinely been really helpful and other than that no I've just like been chatting to friends about it and I guess it's like two of my two of the like closest people in my life are undiagnosed but like almost certain that they are neurodivergent and I think it's very likely that they both are. <laughs> so we've I've sort of been the support role for both of them for a long time and suddenly like turning that around mm. and being like, oh, I'm actually in the gang as well. Cool. Let's, <laughs> nice. we're, we're all navigating this now. It's been really interesting. Buddies are so important when you feel quite alienated at first. And I can relate to the freelancing dilemma. I think it took me two years to really figure out how to be at least <laughs> or try to grasp how to be freelance. If you are managing your own schedule and there's so many hidden neurodivergent traits that uh, are a challenge and organize, I think I feel like we're quite organized people because we have to put that structure in place, especially if you're in freelance. But just also the isolation that you spoke about, that's when we launched the podcast and even just doing it remote was so challenging. And it kind of reminds me of our first episode, which was we re-listened to this the other day. I haven't. It was, well, uh, it wasn't as, you know, it was, it was really hard because we're so, we're two years down the line now and we're learning so much mm-hmm. and we're, we're being more confident about um, being open about dyslexia. And at that point, it, I listened back to it and it kind of is, is a, a, quite a nice, upbeat tone for children. And it kind of reminds me of what you're saying about your own podcast, about it's, it's adults and speaking and about the kind of lived experiences, the good, the bad. And at, at the kind of the opening was like, Look at us, we're doing great. We've got dyslexia. And like just trying to encourage young Listeners, people. We're so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Um, I'm sure it's way better than both of you. Like we're always our worst uh, critics, aren't we? Exactly, like, but... I'm sure it sounds great. Ruby, something you said in your In Touch podcast that really stuck with me was the idea of intergenerational education. Essentially the idea that committing your values is important, but remaining open to new ideas with kindness and patience will keep you from feeling defensive. How do you think we can push this openness throughout society? I think the way that I phrased it in in the series was like holding your beliefs and your values like firmly but gently. Absolutely. If you you mm. just like, I think... I mean, I don't know when it happens. I think it does happen at different stages. But like there becomes, as we get older, our values 
tend to change a bit less because we're like, okay, I've established who I am. This is my identity. And you're kind of like walking through your life with that expectation of of who you've decided to be in a way. And so it means that it's much harder to to confront those things and for them to change and evolve if you've got that like inner stubborn pride of like, but this is who I am. This is this is what I've always thought. I've always found it. I I love working with young people and teaching relationship and sex education, but I almost prefer training adults more because it's like a big challenge. I mean this like in the context of charity work, like me doing a day-long training on like gender and sexuality or pregnancy decision making or porn with a group of adults who often when I was running them were like older than me and had been working as like social workers, nurses, policemen, like all sorts of like roles that engage with young people for like 20 years. Whereas like when I when I talk to a young person who might come from like a really different perspective from me, there's a bit more room for like questioning and curiosity. If I speak to someone who's like just had a belief about like pregnancy decision making and abortion access for 20 years, it's that's a hard nut to crack to be like, but can you see how like your opinion is not the only one or how like there's value in seeing things from different perspectives? And it's it's not about shouting at someone and telling them that they're wrong but it's about acknowledging that like all of us collectively and then all of us individually are going to change throughout our whole lives and so why Mm. pretend that like our our values and our beliefs and our identities are not going to change with that I think like that episode was about gender nonconformity, and I think a real like quite a dramatic place that we see that happening now is talking about gender nonconformity and trans rights and just trans existence. But that filters into like so many different conversations. I I speak to lots of adults who are quite scared of topics because they don't know that much about them and they don't know how to use the language around them and they're worried about getting things wrong. And, And often people's like opinions about these kinds of more difficult topics come from some place of care and fear and like it might be totally misdirected but like if it's if you want to protect young people and you've been told to believe that like trans people like exploit and (laughs) manipulate young people that's a valid fear there but it's from my perspective and from my like professional work just like factually that is really incorrect so it's like about about having conversations that aren't aren't like pointing the finger and instead trying to like bring people along on the journey. You can see it like I'm struggling to say this stuff because it isn't easy, but I just think it's really important to see the nuance in all this kind of stuff. I think it's easy to have like to other people. And I think I don't want to, you know, group everyone's experiences as the same. I guess what I feel personally is I felt othered being on the edge of education and and not really understanding things or conversations that people might be having and I think it's so I don't know it's so easy to kind of not address things you know not not have those conversations and like raise your voice and say like actually I don't quite understand this but I see like a correlation between the work that we're doing is we're saying it's okay to to not have the answers and it's okay to educate a friend or share a story and the more that we do that the more we're able to progress and connect with one another right like and you'll find that most people are hungry to be educated yeah and to learn more and actually the 
the vulnerability, like the vulnerability is, you know, being in the dark slightly. And I think especially with neurodiversity, people are like, oh, what do I say? Or similarly. And uh, actually, it's a really nice, cohesive, wonderful work environment or or just like community environment if there is just like understanding. And yeah, I'm basically cheerleading what you've just said, Liz. Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm always like totally down for someone using uh, as long as it's not like really harmful, someone using the wrong language but with love mm. is is like, you know what, it's totally fine. Like I'm not going to expect to teach my like lovely older aunties <laughs> all of the language around relationships and sex and identity. But as long as they're not being malicious with mm. it, it's kind of, I think I want to give people a lot of room and space to grow and to learn at their own pace as well like just because other people have done a lot of this thinking doesn't mean that you are behind you're Mm. just like you're going at your own pace with it all Mm -hmm. and what are some of the things that you like on reflection have been like oh my god how did no one pick this up or like how did I not pick this up that I I was living with dyslexia what on reflection have you kind of realized well I I think a lot of the things just until literally a month ago was like dyslexia is being bad at spelling and being bad at maths but like I just thought that's what it was and I'm not I'm not very good at at like spelling or at maths but I'm not terrible at them and also like my my dad was like is such a sweet little nerd and yeah so my dad's did like mental maths with me and my sibling when we were really little. And so I was actually really good at maths in primary school because I was getting so much support. And as soon as we stopped doing that and I went to secondary school, I really struggled with maths. And I've never been that good at English. Well, not at English, at spelling or grammar, but I've kind of just been like, lol, that's fine. I keep saying lol in this, like, who am I? (laughs) But um, just kind of like dismissing that a little bit, I guess. And also I had... I think I've had a scapegoat with lots of my like earlier development because I had I like lost my hearing for a portion of my childhood because um, I had glue ear twice and had to like had to have it operated. What's glue? Wow. Glue ear is I don't think I'm going to say this correctly. It's when your eardrum is like perforated, so it doesn't burst. Oh like a burst God. eardrum is like really really serious, but this really damaged. Well, it really affected my hearing until it got like people in my life realized it and I started going to the doctors but I think there was like a six month period of me having like really limited hearing and that I think because of that my like development in terms of like spelling and grammar and all that kind of stuff was not as good but I've just always thought it was about that and it wasn't something else how old were you uh I think like six seven eight kind of age so Mm. um and I haven't, and you know, that's obviously linked, but I think I've just always put it in the box of being like, oh, but that was like a hearing thing, nothing else. And massively thinking, I think the biggest thing is thinking about languages because I didn't realize, like I have so much shame about l- not being able to learn languages because my like short-term memory is really rubbish and I just cannot, it makes me panic so much. Like I li- I went on holiday a couple of weeks ago and and like was almost in tears a couple of times of just being like, why I'm such a failure because I can't grasp any Spanish. Like, why can I not do this? And I didn't realize that that was linked to oh, like dyslexia. Yeah. I just had no idea. And my whole, you know, 
my whole life that's been a real that's been like a real area of shame and insecurity for me. And so it was quite comforting, but also quite weird to be like, why did I not know that this is why? Like I was just made to feel so stupid at school. And I had teachers who like really were actually quite malicious and mean in lang- in like language lessons when I just couldn't get things because I think they just thought I was not trying and a bit stupid. And I was really trying, but it just couldn't, none of it could work. I, like none of it worked in my head and it still doesn't now. Isn't it brilliant though that you get to go into schools and host spaces in an accessible way and change the shape of that? You know, yeah. if if someone oh, so has, nice. yeah, like this is brilliant though that, you know, someone has a question, question, question. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, here I am trying to do languages. Is <laughs> that French coming out? <laughs> oh gosh, I did go to Madrid and oh, I got out of the taxi and I went, messy. <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm mortified. Um, but what I was saying was, you know, you you have the ability to recreate that space, especially with now, you know, that you have dyslexia and reflecting on the experiences that you've had. Ruby, you might have heard Liz say this before in the series, but people with dyslexia have high empathy levels and great emotional intelligence. Do you feel that your dyslexia has been a tool in helping you support people? Yeah, I think so. I think, again, I've never, it's so new me looking at it through that neurodivergent lens because I have definitely, I think the thing that's allowed me to feel like I'm emotionally intelligent and empathetic and like kind emotionally has been the fact that so many of my, so many aspects of my identity kind of sit somewhere in between a binary so and and there's that like that experience of feeling like slightly othered and odd one out but also not so othered that it's like really visible or overt there's a kind of in-betweenness and that is in so many parts of my life so I'm dual heritage I'm British and Sri Lankan both parts of my heritage are incredibly important to me Uh, and like brown people can see it white people often don't <laughs> so there's like a I I'm white passing in a lot of spaces but not all of the time there's a kind of in-betweenness of that of like not feeling wholly white but also feeling very insecure about not connecting as much to my Sri Lankan heritage um, I'm queer in my sexuality and in my gender as well but like I'm I'm like bi pansexual so I'm not like full gay I'm doing that in little air quotes because obviously that's not an official term uh so like you know being able to kind of bridge a gap like that aspect of queerness is not the same is not like halfway in between straight and gay but there is some empathy that I can have an understanding across a really broad array of sexualities and with my gender as well like I I pass as a woman and I am very like woman and femme presenting but I also don't see my identity, my gender identity as like solely as a woman um, and non-monogamy as well. Like there's so much like non, like non-binariness or beyond binariness with like deconstructing relationships. There are just loads of different aspects of my life where I'm kind of seeing things from quite a, from like a crossroads perspective or like, you know, being able to look at different things and this feeds into that. So rather than me looking at that perspective and being like, oh, it's dyslexia. It's like, oh, there's like another tool to add to my like arsenal of like how I look at the world in a slightly 
uh, like queer way and like ye olde sense of the word of like unusual, I guess. And I think that's really cool. And I quite like that because I think all of us, it's not about ticking boxes and being like, oh, these are my, I'm collecting marginalized identities here. But I, I think all of us have like marginalized aspects of ourselves and our personality and our identities. And it's just really cool to notice them because it, I think, again, it always comes back to like kindness of being able to look at other people and other people's experience with more kindness. There were a couple of things that came into my head, which was, have you read The Queer Art of Failure? Queer Art? I'm not saying that right, am I? Have I've, you read I've it? I've read bits of it. I've not read the whole thing. I, I really, really like to read yeah. it. And I just wanted to, <laughs> I really just wanted to get a book recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as you were speaking, it kind of made me think about that because obviously we spoke about failure in school and we're so failing to understand things for the benefit of others. And, and then it just made me think about that. But then it also made me think about my sex ed uh, conversation at school and thinking everything that you've just said was not mentioned at all and I really hope that now you know th- things have progressed and people are getting the right information from people such as yourself when I was at school it's such an unspoken thing I feel like the last sort of seven years have been trying to like undo all of my like teenage years of just being so desperate to conform and to be like everyone else and to be normal and to like you know just be bang in the middle of the status quo and actually feeling more and more able to see myself as separate from that and almost like relish in that that's so important and I and like even in the arts like even when I was doing like performance stuff as a teenager I was just obsessed with like being not being too weird and not being too different and now I don't feel like that as much it's still all in there. Like that conformity stuff really sticks with you. Yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah. And I think communication is like a massive thing that we struggle with. (laughs) Would you have guessed? (laughs) (laughs) You know, but, you know, it is, it is something that um, I'm challenged by, you know, finding the right words is so incredibly frustrating sometimes that, you know, I just can't get to them. It's like they're just like locked away in in a little cupboard and I'm grappling for the key. <laughs> but I you know I just can't find it. And listening to the podcast and and looking on your Instagram and the work that you do it, it's all so embedded in communication. How challenging is that for you to find the right words and find the right language? Has that come always come easy for you or do you see that there are challenges still there for you? There are definitely challenges. And again, now I'm looking at them being like, oh, so this is dyslexia. Cool. And but yeah, they've always been there. I think I found ways to manage them. A big one has just been like not caring about spelling things wrong and not Mm -hmm. letting that get to me and just being like, yep, sorry, I'm in a rush. I'm not going to proofread everything. There will be spelling mistakes like that's I've I've never claimed to be good at spelling or grammar. And my vocabulary i everything that i do has quite an a like kind and and you know like not serious but not it's not flippant but i i have quite an informal tone in the way that i communicate and that happens if i'm speaking or writing or 
I don't know if there are other ways of communicating. <laughs> like, you know, you know, don't, well, <laughs> but if I'm like, if I'm using my words in whatever way, it is in an informal way. And I quite enjoy that. But that's also a bit of a coping mechanism of being like, so I'm not going to use loads of big fancy words. Like I don't have a big vocabulary. I have like an emotional vocabulary, but I return to the same words like all the time. And I often get in, I will have like months well, a month of just using like one phrase or one word over and over again. And I've done that since I was a kid. And like my mum's always made fun of me for doing that. And now it's like, hey, think this is a dyslexic thing. Yeah, I agree. I think listening back to the podcast, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've used that word for the 10th time. I say it all the time. Yeah, definitely. But I, I think I really enjoy speaking and my, the way that I speak then informs the way that I write. I'm not trying to do it differently when I'm writing. And for me, it's been really useful to just take it a bit less seriously. So even when I was like writing my book, it was, I did quite a lot of it initially through like um, dictation. So oh, there's really? like apps, like I've got like an app on my laptop where I was just like, okay, if I'm really stuck, I'm just going to talk this out mm. and then I'll go back and edit it through because once there's something on a page I can like deal with it but typing something out fresh can feel really complicated mm. for me and yeah I just think the human voice is like the best the coolest tool that I have and also you know I I will always leave someone a voice note over texting them because it's just like that's it's easier it's faster and it like gets my it's you I'm not just having to rely on my words I'm relying on like the tone of my voice and you know the, mm. the way that I'm saying things and I can meander and having that is really useful because I can't and I and again now like I literally only a couple of days ago I was like oh yeah I think that's a neurodivergent thing <laughs> like shit again all this uh, stuff it all connects but it's so been quite cool. cool to know that I um I have friends that are like, please keep your voice notes to only five seconds. And I'm like, because <laughs> I'm always like, hey, oh God, what a wonderful day it is. Um, so yeah, Friday night. Um <laughs> like so now I'm like, okay, Friday night, yeah, see you there, 9 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I will stop to like tell a friend that I've just seen like a really beautiful leaf. Oh, and I and also like, I think lovely. my I think mates of mine like those meandering voice notes now. Which, but like, but we've all had to like learn to love them, I guess. we all Absolutely. Them I think I got sent a, a 10 minute one oh, the other wow. day. I love a 10 minute. I'm <gasps> like, do you? yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, do you know what it is? <laughs> is I'll forget what's been said. So I, I have to type notes <laughs> yeah, as sometimes I'm listening <laughs> to, to the voice note. And then I have to type out a message in response because I'll just forget what they've said. That also makes me think about our school and being dancers and thinking about identity and body confidence. And I don't know if you have had this experience, but I remember every day sort of going into ballet class and just you have to sort of, the bar is all by these mirrors. So, and being well, I'm going to upgrade myself here, an athlete of the theatre. That's what we were called at school. And, um, you know, like you're constantly critiquing your your tone, your um, physique, the form, the, I don't know how to uh, explain it, but the kind of, um, what you're, the shape you're creating classically or, or movement-wise. And so hearing your podcast about 
identity body really resonated because even though I do not stand in a leotard every day now, you know, those experiences do still stick with you. You talk a lot about being kind to yourself. And I know that that younger Charlie would have loved to have heard your words. What have been your ways of implementing kindness to yourself? That's such a nice question. But also such a nice, I think it's so important to share, for you to share that and think about the ways that it kind of comes into all parts of our life and even the parts that we love and we're so passionate about. Like, you know, clearly you both get so much like joy in life through dance, but there are still those challenges and that like perfectionism and discipline can be really complicated as well and can bring up loads of stuff. So I have definitely felt that in my life. And I think the last like, I think the past five, six years for me in particular has been really important in actually, first of all, believing that I am allowed to be kind to myself and not just doing it because you feel like, you know, there's lots of like girl boss empowerment stuff that you see on social media and you're like, oh yeah, I guess I should love myself. Like actually believing it and that being a really integral part to myself and who I am, that has been really nice. And there have been a few things in terms of my body. I mean, I guess the the biggest one was the biggest one, like so links to nudity and links to the life drawing collective that I co-run with one of my best mates, Rosie Pendlebaby, who was just like the best person ever. And we met in a field six years ago at Secret Garden Party. And we were both working as absinthe fairies, like luring people into a forest <laughs> to like <laughs> feed them absinthe. And I just thought she was the coolest person ever. And we've really fallen in love and we have both been life models for a really long time and also ran life drawing classes and recognized that we, our relationships with our bodies had been really transformed by being in life drawing spaces and just getting that different perspective of how your body is seen and how you see other bodies. So we started a class that was all about kind of celebrating bodies and also trying to creatively empower people to just like fucking do stuff and make messy joyful silly drawings and it not need to be perfect and actually like the the imperfectness of them all is what makes them so incredible so that that space we've been running those classes for almost four years now and that has been massive for me and it is like a every time that we do we do those classes twice a month and it's like a constant reminder of why I'm doing this stuff and it's like this real real like beautiful community that I feel very connected to and very proud of and I just love being naked and I think like falling back in love with not not my body in like how it looks being naked, just like how it feels to be nude is brilliant. And like that ties in so much with swimming. I could go on a whole like Margate open water swimming wanker tangent, but I won't today, <laughs> but that's all there. And then like getting tattoos as well, I think has been like the, and a thing that's really like embodied me. And I've I've been getting tattooed for like a decade now and it just helps me take my body less seriously. And actually, for me, the less seriously I'm taking myself, the more kind I feel towards myself. Because it's just like, okay, yeah, I can just doodle all over my body because it's just flesh. Like, it's literally just like a sack of meat that I get to walk around in. And actually, the act of getting a tattoo that you then think is in hindsight a bit rubbish (laughs) or not done very well, that has been so important for me in terms of being kind to my body because it's almost like I've got a few tattoos I just think are objectively stupid but like it's getting them where are they I mean I've got like an (laughs) awful uh, there are there are lots of weird ones and ones that people don't get as well but I love but 
I've got this stupid, really badly done hand poke tattoo of like a Louise Bourgeois fa- like tiny face and then with massive boobs and it's on my bum. And it's done so, I I love it, but it's really not done very well. And so I've had over the years a process of being like, oh, okay, I don't think I should have got that. Should I have? Maybe I should have done. No, actually, it's not about whether or not you should have got that or not. It's kind of learning to love and accept it and be like, okay, you're part of the motley crew of weird wonky tattoos. Come on in. You're in the club. Let's just all go on this body of mine. And once you learn, when I've learned to do that with tattoos, it helps me to do that with other parts of my body as well. And yeah. It's kind of part of the idea of letting go, right? Like we have to let go of our emotional connections to so much stuff. Or this is my current journey anyway, is that I hold so much meaning and like weight into things that don't need to be there. And actually, if I could just let go of some of the meaning and heaviness that I hold to even the word dyslexia for me has been like a whole process that I've been on with a coach around like, how how do I let that go? How do I accept it as part of me as opposed to me and dyslexia? Mm. Yeah. And also like the liberation of just accepting your body as it is and as it comes. And you're so right. Like it is just a vessel that we get to host for a bit and then it's gone. But I'm I'm really good at doing that with my body. And I've realized more recently that I'm not very good about doing that with my mind. Right. And like, you know, they're all part of ourselves. Like the fact that we separate our body as like a different part of ourselves is kind of weird. And I think very rooted in like capitalism and just being able to like exploit bodies for labor. But like that's all dualism, which I th- I like nerd out on, but actually don't know that much about. So if anyone knows more about it, apologies, because <laughs> maybe I didn't get it right. But I don't. Everything that you're saying about your relationship with dyslexia, like that... I will have to do that at some point in the future because mm. that I'm not I'm not very kind about myself when it comes to mm. my mind. Right. We yeah, can we can do some that. exchanges. Yeah. <laughs> Let's exchange, definitely. I did a naked cycle ride once around <gasps> London. Nice. And it was so liberating. Oh, I do remember you saying this. But issue. equally really pervy. Like it was just a lot of middle-aged white men, you know, taking pictures at <gasps> every pit stop and you know, I ended up in the Daily Mirror. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! I mean, Australia was like, "Is this you?" Wow, that's amazing and horrific. Um, yeah, it was. It was. It was the most liberating experience, but the most um, like vulnerable experience in that just seeing the way that we're perceived as women. Like it was, we were just objects. No one asked, "Do you mind if I take a picture?" Yeah. It was just like groups Gosh. of men just hounding around us every time we stopped. It was. It was really horrible. But like the freedom as well was, you know, worth, worth every moment that, of it. That external environment, like we can have all these kinds of chats and then you realise that you step outside of the bubble of like kindness and acceptance and all that stuff. And you're like, oh, there's still a lot of yeah. stuff to tackle globally before we're all in this mindset. Like we're massively in the minority here mm-hmm. and it's hard to do that in, in a wider world doesn't feel as ready for this kind of way of thinking. Do you have any advice to young people exploring their sexualities and sexual identity? Ooh, I like this question. Uh, Yeah, I do. I probably shouldn't like ramble forever about it because this is one of the topics where I'm like, how much time you got? I could do, I could go for four hours here just talking about that. Um, But I won't, don't worry. I I think 
the first piece of advice I'd give is to not be afraid of like having conversations with yourself because a lot of the time we all inherit so much shame and so much fear about sex and I think that fear can stop us from having honest conversations about about where we're at right now and until you it sounds kind of corny but until you can communicate with yourself it's really hard to communicate that stuff to other people so there's no rush in figuring this stuff out and and like this stuff is never going to stay the same you're not going to get to like a final end point because you know you can't you can't change someone's sexuality you can't like make someone gay or straight but you but our own personal understandings of our sexualities constantly evolve and and like it's not about the labels within that like your my relationship me as a queer person that queerness is going to change throughout my life so it's not about rushing to like a final conclusion and and be be really curious about all of the other people around you and their relationship to this because we all we're all treading a really similar path but from like quite unique perspectives and that's kind of cool and it's good to remember that you're not the only one who's doing this because anything vulnerable in our lives can feel so isolating and I feel like that a lot of like I'm the only one that has this problem oh my god it's so difficult and like it doesn't get less difficult because you realize that other people are dealing with it but losing that sense of aloneness is really useful and powerful Mm, yeah definitely I would love to hear like what advice your younger self would give to you now that's such a good question uh I think my younger self would remind me to see things from their perspective of like how exciting and how cool this stuff that I'm doing is now like it's easy to get wrapped up and feel jaded and find things to complain about in whatever situation you're in currently. But I think if like 21 year old me could look at me now, their first response would be like, oh my God, you're doing all of this stuff and you're this and this and this and you found this out. And like, you know, the fact that like just recently, a couple of things in my personal life and professional life have just happened, which have been so special and so exciting and it's easy to not dwell on that and not just nerd out on how cool it is. So I think they'd like just want me to be a bit more of a cheerleader for myself and not be as hard on myself. And and also having now having known that you're dyslexic and to reflect on all the things that you've achieved. Yeah, totally. And and also to be, I think my younger self would I think me now is in a bit of a phase of like being really annoyed that I didn't know this and I didn't have the support and younger me would probably be like yeah but look what you've done like regardless of that look what you've done and like yeah you can figure that stuff out now but like you're you're doing all right and I think I'm I think I'm doing like my younger selves proud which is a nice thing to say. Because you just found out that you had dyslexia, for people who are listening that are also going through an experience of, oh, I think I am, would you encourage them to go get a test? Would you encourage the reveal? I don't know. I mean, my reveal came as a real surprise. So I wasn't expecting to get a test or thinking that they might have a, I might like get a diagnosis. I think more than a test, it's good to 
do a bit of research and just see if aspects of neurodivergent neurodivergency relate to you because it doesn't like I've I feel kind of empowered by having some certainty and having done a test and knowing this but I've also got two people in my life who are kind of not really planning on getting a uh, diagnosis because it just feels too stressful and too complicated and for them it's like okay I align I, I really these aspects of neurodivergency really speak to me and I think they make a lot of sense for me so it's the support that they can provide for themselves in that um there's no right way of doing it but if you feel like you want to definitely do yeah. does that make like it does you know? and what you did just say there as well as self-diagnosis is also really valuable if you see things in others yeah. or you hear this conversation you, you don't need someone else me. I'm I like a bit of validation so I really benefit from someone being like yeah so this is what you are this is this is there but like you don't need someone else to tell you in order for it to be valid what a stellar ending to the series thank you so much for coming on the Move Me On Words podcast it's been gorgeous to listen to your wonderful work and um and welcome to the neurodivergent community thank you thank you (laughs) it's been really nice chatting to both of you thanks so much Thanks for joining us on this episode of Move Beyond Words podcast. For more information about this episode, please check out the links in the show notes or visit our website at movebeyondwords.co.uk. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. From as little as a pound, the price of seven bananas from Tesco's, you can join our network on Instagram, enjoy access to behind the scenes content and receive a Move Beyond Words welcome pack. To become a patron, please head over to patreon.com slash movebeyondwords or follow the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this series and you're interested in supporting series three, please get in touch via info at movebeyondwords.co.uk. This podcast was produced by the Move Beyond Words team, Elizabeth Arifium, myself, Charlotte Edmonds, and Chris Bristow. It was recorded in Serendipity Studios, London, with graphic design by Alex Colhan and sound design and music by Chris Bristow and Tom Parker. Hold up. 